Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host for today's podcast. I'm speaking today with Andrew Torget, University Distinguished Professor of Teaching at the University of North Texas. And we're going to be discussing his newest book, Seeds of Empire, Cotton, Slavery, and the Transformation of the Texas Borderlands, 1800 to 1850, which the University of North Carolina Press published in 2015 and since then won several awards and prizes, including the David J. Weber Clements Center Prize for the Best Book on Southwestern History from the Western History Association. Thank you so much for joining me today, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for having me. First, why don't you just introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, tell us a bit about your background and tell us what got you interested in history as a profession. Sure. Um, well, so I, I, I've always been interested in the history of the South because I, I grew up in the South. I was, I was born in Tennessee. Um, I grew up mostly in Texas and then I went to school in Virginia. So I'd always been interested in Southern history, but I grew up in Texas and um, I was always interested in Texas history because it was the place that I, I knew the best. And in Texas, um, you, <laughs> when you grow up in the state, you take the state's history not once, but twice in fourth and seventh grade. And it had always seemed like a, a strange kind of history because when I was taught it in fourth grade and then again in seventh, it always felt like this very, everything happened in Texas and it was only what happened in Texas was interesting and it didn't seem to have much connection to the rest of the United States or, or the world even, which I always found kind of weird and strange. So I was always sort of interested in that history, but more drawn to Southern history. Um, and so in, in college, I had some really great uh, professors that I got to take some classes from that really got me hooked on these big questions about race and slavery and identity and freedom and what all these things mean in American history. Um, so that really solidified it for me in college, and I decided I wanted to go to grad school. Um, and so I, I went um, to the University of Virginia for grad school. And, and I remember when I got there, it felt like getting dropped off at a playground in a certain sense because there were all these other people who were just as interested as I was in these big kind of questions. And they were, you know, from all over the country, in some cases all over the world, but were deeply engaged. And it was such a uh, intoxicating environment to be talking about and reading um, these books with these people. And really the, the arena of ideas that, uh, that I think scholarship is all about became this thing that drew me in in a way that uh, just kind of set me on fire. And so I can't imagine really uh, any, any other job that would be as satisfying, I think, as, as getting to do what I get to do, which is, you know, read and think and write and, and engage people on, on, on these, sites, these sorts of questions. I've asked a lot of scholars and historians that question or some version of that question over the last few years. And it seems like that's a trend that people's love of history often starts very close to home. People asking questions about why is the place where I'm growing up? Why is it like this in a certain way? And it sounds like you had a similar experience. Yeah, well, I think every 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 place I've ever been has this sort of moment of historical identity. 
Like for Texas, it's the Republic of Texas. Uh, my parents are from California, and that's a very different um, ball of wax than Texas. In Virginia, it's the colonial era for Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, or um, the Civil War with Richmond as the capital and Robert E. Lee and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I think that you're right. It comes back to this identity question, right? We all see ourselves in these pieces of history. And I remember when I was at the, when I was in Virginia in the early 2000s, um, the, I, the, they were going to unveil a statue of Lincoln at the Iron, uh, the Tredegar Ironworks um, in Richmond. And I remember being fascinated by this because this was before the Confederate monuments um, debates that have been going on more recently. But they were going to put up this statue of Lincoln. And there were people in Virginia who were descendant of Confederate soldiers like Jeb Stewart, the, I think, fifth, I forget exactly, um, you know, who were concerned about this and felt very strongly about this. And I remember being mesmerized by it because the Civil War had been a very long time ago, but it almost felt like yeah, it was going on today at this moment. And when they unveiled the statue of Lincoln, somebody flew a plane over the unveiling that had a, a banner out the back that said, Six Semper Tyrannis. Oh. Which is, of course, the motto of Virginia, thus always to tyrants, but it's also what John Wilkes Booth yelled when he jumped from the balcony after shooting Lincoln in the head. Um, and how we feel this strongly today about these events that happened so long ago is in part because they, they have an influence on today, but a lot of it has to do with the stories we tell ourselves and how we think about ourselves and, and identity. And it's, it's so powerfully um, connected, I think, to the places that we connect with, home and the people that we identify with. So I, I agree with you. I think history is more relevant than it's ever been mm -hmm. um, in large measure because I think we're debating and discussing what do these stories mean and how the ways we tell them really matter and how we think about ourselves as a people. And how did you... Be, how did you get drawn to this particular topic, uh, the, the topic of the book itself, of the economics of cotton and of slavery in Texas specifically? Well, you know, I, that's a really interesting question because I did not come to this topic on purpose. Um, I sort of backed my way into it. Um, so I, I grew up in Texas. And I'll, I'll tell you, again, fourth and seventh grade, I thought Texas history was interesting, but it really seemed to have nothing to say to the rest of the country and had no real connections to anything broader because it was taught in a way that was so built around Texas is unique and different and everything here was just here. So I left Texas thinking I wanted to study the South and slavery and the 19th century um, because those did seem to be connected to bigger questions and broader themes that had more relevance. And so I went to UVA planning to study the South writ large, and I did. Um, but I started working on migration because I thought the movement of people is really interesting um, and it's been a tough thing to study in Southern history. And so I was studying these slaveholders and planters who were leaving Virginia in the 18-teens and they were going down to Mississippi and Alabama. And when they got there, they're, you know, they're building the prototype of the Deep South, the Cotton South. It's during the Cotton Revolution of the early 18-teens. And I thought that was very interesting. But some of these guys kept going west. And they were leaving the United States and they were going into Mexico, which was then, which is what Texas was a part of then. So I knew they were going into Texas. And then suddenly this light bulb went off in my head where I was thinking, wow, wait a second. Are these the same people I was reading about in fourth and seventh grade Texas history? And if they are, are they connected to the Cotton Revolution? Are they slaveholders? Are they bringing slaves with them? Oh, my goodness, because none of that, none of that had been a part of any of what we'd learned um, in the K-12 through experience growing up in the state. 
And so suddenly this kind of went off in my head and, and I thought, well, that's fascinating because if you have slaveholders who are going to Mississippi and Alabama, they've got the protection of the United States Constitution that's backing them and they can write their own state constitutions. Mississippi and Alabama become a state in 1817 and 1819. Um, but if, they, if these slaveholders leave the United States and they go to Mexico, they're abandoning all of those protections and they're going to try to set up a slave society and cotton farming in a place that, that doesn't have that legal structure that they depend on in Mississippi and Alabama. What does that look like? And, and how, how would they explain that to the Mexican government, why this is a good idea? They, Mississippians don't have to explain to the United States why slavery is you know, something they can keep because it's written into the Constitution. Whereas um, in Mexico, they'd have to actually explain to the Mexican government, this is good for the following however many reasons they want to come up with. So um, I got into the project with the idea of like, what happens when, you know, American slaveholders tried to build um, a cotton farming district outside of the United States? And would that give us a new window into the ideology of expansion and their ideas about slavery and their ideas about the West, all in a way that we couldn't otherwise have because, you know, you're basically in an entirely new um, environment where they have to articulate their ideas more openly than they otherwise ever would have to. You were talking a couple minutes ago about the importance of place in history, and this is a book about a particular place. So let's start by just having you set the scene for us a bit. Where exactly are we talking about here? What is that place like, and what are the political and social circumstances of the Texas borderlands in the beginning of the 19th century? Right. So the place is, it's bigger than what Texas is today. It's this borderlands territory between the United States and really when the book begins, New Spain, right? So it's this overlapping kind of region that's farther north than anybody in the Spanish Empire really controls and farther west than the French, but definitely the United States, have really ever controlled. Um, so it's this kind of overlapping region. That's why it's a borderland. I mean, the borderlands has become a very hot um, field in, in the historical profession as it deserves to be. Um, but it's a really perfect metaphor for or way of thinking about this region because Texas and the Texas borderlands was an area of really overlapping influences, American economic influence, um, Spanish and then Mexican political influence. But the real powerhouse in the region were the Comanches. And so you have all these different groups kind of competing for control and space in this territory. The Spanish had claimed it but never really controlled it. Mexico inherits it, but... Mexico has virtually nobody there that's loyal to the Mexican government. Uh, when Mexico becomes independent in 1821, there's like 3,000 um, Mexican nationals that live in the territory. Um, the United States has long been interested in it. Like Thomas Jefferson tried to make it part of the Louisiana Purchase, and then Spain said no and contested that in the early, very early 19th century. So it's this kind of nether region, no man's land territory that if you look at a map, was controlled by Spain. Um, if you were on the ground, the Comanches were the real powerhouse in the region and the, the group you were most aware of if you were going to go into the territory. Um, but the geography really matters because eastern portions of the Texas borderlands, geogra or geologically, I should say, is very similar to Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama. It's this Gulf Coastal Plains region that's well watered. It's great, great lush landscape that's perfect for cotton farming. And it has the same, you know, um, 
benefit of being close to the Gulf that you have frost-free days that are very conducive to growing cotton. You've got great shipping uh, opportunities to get to New Orleans. And that's really one of the big keys, too, is it's close to New Orleans, which is established by the French in 1718. But it's this international port that connects not just the United States, but to the entire world, particularly the British Empire, which is the largest and most voracious purchaser of cotton at this time. So you've got this kind of open territory, um, not open, it's not like there aren't people there, but it's, it's, it's contested. Um, right next to New Orleans, right on the edge of this cotton revolution that's happening in the southern United States. And so it is kind of on the precipice of all these different pieces that come to play in the shaping of Texas from you know, the 18-teens, when it's this completely contested territory, to the 1820s when Anglo colonists start coming in, um, collaborating with the Mexicans who live in the territory, to in the 1830s, Texas secedes from Mexico and then becomes this really crazy thing, its own independent nation for nine whole years, until finally it's annexed to the United States in the mid-1840s. And so that's the, the arc of the, of the book, is really trying to understand that transformation and that incredibly rapid transformation of this place as a result of all these different contested influences overlapping um, in this place at the same time. And what are some of the factors, the, the push and the pull factors that are bringing American colonists to this borderlands region? Who is coming and, and why are they deciding to make that trip? You mentioned uh, the land and the environment as one draw, but what are some other ones as well? Right. So um, people who start coming to Texas, well, first, the people who are coming to Texas originally, besides the Native Americans who live there, are there's, there's a handful of um, Mexican families Spanish families that become Mexican families that are already in the territory by the early 19th century. Um, and they've come because the Spanish Empire uh, first ordered people up there essentially to try to claim the territory. Um, but they have so few people in the region that um, they're at the mercy of the Native American groups who live there, particularly the Comanche. And so when Mexico becomes independent in 1821, the Mexicans who live in Texas, who are called Tejanos, um, they desperately want an increased population in the region. They need more people to control it. And Mexico as a nation needs more people in Texas to even come close to really claiming true control of the region for this new nation. Um, at the same moment, you have um, Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana have blown up in terms of population with the Cotton Revolution of the late 1818-teens. Um, but when the panic of 1819 hits and land becomes very hard to purchase or come by, suddenly you have a lot of American settlers in these southwestern states um, who want to grow cotton, who want to sell it to the British and can make a lot of money doing it, but suddenly can't get any land. And then just across the Sabine River in Texas, I mean, the stones throw away quite literally. Um, you have vast stretches of land that Mexico decides they will open up to settlers who will come in and swear loyalty to the Mexican government. And if you do that, you'll get 4,428 acres of land for showing up, essentially. And that's seven square miles of land for coming over. And you'll become a new Mexican national. You'll become a Mexican citizen, hopefully, and become loyal to the Mexican government. And you'll do it because you can have more land than you could ever hope to get in the United States. Um, 
And so that's the, the plan from Mexico's side of things, is try to strengthen their position in the region by enticing Americans to come over with the promise of vast stretches of land. Why would that be appealing to the Americans? Well, it's because this land is good for growing cotton. And there's a massive market now, as the British have started buying huge amounts of cotton, especially in the 18-teens. The price of cotton doubles um, in 1815 overnight from 15 cents a pound to 30 cents a pound. So the, the, the market forces are tremendous in terms of the incentive for these Americans to come in and, and get the land and grow cotton. And so by the hundreds and then by the thousands, they start coming in in the early 1820s. And they're all being ushered in by a fellow named Stephen F. Austin, who is the, he's known as an impresario, which is essentially a land agent for the Mexican government. And so he's bringing them in in part because he can make a lot of money off of that process, too. He'll get a whole lot of land uh, for bringing in several hundred families of Americans coming into the territory. And so you have this kind of confluence, right, of what Mexico needs are people uh, in Texas. And what the Americans want is land for cotton. And so the people start coming in, and they are almost exclusively from the American South. About 90% of the people who come into Austin's colony during this time period are from Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Tennessee, Georgia. I mean, they're from the American South. So they're coming from Alabama and not Illinois. They're coming from Mississippi and not Maine. And the reason is because this is land, not just land, it's land for cotton. And that's what's bringing them in here. As a result of that, what they're bringing with them as well is slavery and the system of slavery that was making Mississippi plantations so profitable. They're bringing that in with them into Mexico and, and really, that's what starts causing huge problems between this migration stream into Mexico and the Mexican government as it's forming itself in the early 1820s. And slavery as an institution has a history, of course, in New Spain and in Mexico and in the place that would later become Texas. So can you tell us a bit about the politics of slavery in the region and in Mexico more broadly in the beginning of the 19th century? Sure. Um, Mexico had been... A under the Spanish, Mexico had been a major importer of African slaves um, to work in the silver mines uh, of the mountains, especially north of Mexico City. And they brought in enslaved people by the hundreds of thousands, really. They were one of the major importers uh, during the 1500s and early 1600s. Um, but Mexico had moved away from that um, because it wasn't, it wasn't profitable in the broader sense of things because the, the enslaved Africans would... Would, would get sick and die, and it was extremely expensive to be importing them from Africa. So Mexico had turned in large measure toward uh, enslaving Indian labor um, during the Spanish era. And by the early 1800s, when, uh, when my story begins, um, African slavery across Mexico was, was very, very, not rare, I should say, but it was, uh, it was not the norm. And there were very few enslaved Africans in terms of um, raw numbers across, across Mexico. Um, there was still unfree labor. I want to emphasize that with indentured servitude and debt peonage um, of, of enslaved Indians. But um, as a general rule, there were not many enslaved Africans throughout most of Mexico. And so when Mexico became independent in 1821, most Mexicans, as they're forming their new nation, agree they want to get rid of slavery. Um, and they want to outlaw it in their new country. And, and there's a couple reasons for that. Um, first, 
they had just fought a war for independence and liberty and freedom of themselves. And so they saw the same contradiction that the founders of the United States realized they were um, dealing with in fighting for liberty for themselves, but preserving slavery as well. And so for a lot of people, there were ideological reasons for outlawing slavery at the beginning of the Mexican nation. Um, second reason, though, is that because there were no, not large numbers of enslaved Africans throughout most of Mexico uh, when it becomes independent, they can get rid of slavery without sacrificing very much economically. Um, there's not a lot that they're going to have to give up necessarily if they outlaw slavery. Um, but the third reason they want to outlaw slavery is um, that as a new nation, Mexico is going to need international friends. And the biggest, most powerful nation of the 19th century was uh, the British Empire, right? Great Britain was the friend you absolutely needed to have if you wanted to get loans from uh, the, the financial centers in London. Um, and British investors owned most Mexican debt in their minds anyway. So to play nice with the British, you, you really need to move towards outlawing the international slave trade and outlawing slavery in general. So for almost all Mexicans across all of Mexico, one of the few things they could really agree on at the beginning of the Mexican nation is that they wanted to outlaw slavery. The only exception to that were the Mexicans who lived in the Texas borderlands up um, near the United States border. And the Mexicans there recognized that slavery had brought a lot of wealth and prosperity and development to places like Louisiana and Mississippi. Um, they wanted that same kind of development in Texas. And so when these Tejanos who lived in places like San Antonio they would go to New Orleans to trade. They would see in New Orleans, which is the biggest cotton trading port in the southwestern United States, and it's the biggest slave trading center of the region, all the economic power and value that the slave system had brought to the southern United States. And so they were very interested in bringing that kind of development and really the cotton revolution into Texas, in large measure because there seemed to be no other way to develop the region and to bring that kind of prosperity to themselves and their families that they could see. So for them, the Tejanos in Texas, the Mexicans who lived in the Texas borderlands, they saw slavery kind of as a means to an end of developing the region. And they took a very different view than Mexicans throughout the rest of the nation. And so this became a giant political battle uh, within Mexico about whether or not slavery would be outlawed across the nation as most Mexicans wanted, or if it would be allowed to remain in certain places, particularly the Texas borderlands, as the Mexicans who lived in Texas wanted to happen, because they thought that was the key to bringing American migration, cotton farming, and therefore economic development into this territory that up until then had been, for their experience, um, you know, a, a, a place that had been underdeveloped and left them essentially at the mercy of groups like the Comanches who controlled most of the territory. And I'll just say briefly here that I thought one of the strengths of your book was the way that you were able to parse some pretty complicated uh, political arguments that were going on in Mexico and in the region that would become Texas with a lot of different actors and everything in a way that was very easy to follow and understand. So thank you for doing that. No, thank you. It's complicated, but it's really, I think, fascinating to understand that some of the debates that are happening in Mexico are very similar to debates that happened in the United States between Federalists and Anti-Federalists um, and these fights about how centralized authority should be or not be. But they're critical to understand if they're going to understand how Mexico saw this migration of Americans coming into the territory and how they reacted to it. 
Yeah, I interviewed Peter uh, Gardino actually recently on this very podcast about his new book on the uh, Mexican-American War. And a big part of his book was about how there are a lot of similarities between the United States and Mexico in the 19th century. And you're kind of getting at some of the same ideas there when it comes Mm -hmm. to slavery as well. Absolutely. One of the core arguments of your book is that slavery was also central to the secession of Texas from Mexico. Can you tell us a brief history of the Texas secession and about slavery's role in that political moment? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's complicated because the, in the American Civil War in 1860 and 1861, slavery is front and center in all the rhetoric that you see, right? And I always tell my students, when you talk about the, the American Civil War, um, and you read the documents and how people described from the southern states why they're seceding and what they're doing, they, they always frame it in terms of slavery. Um, they're very upfront about it and very um, clear about it. With the Texas Revolution, slavery's role has been hotly debated by historians going back to the early, 20th, uh, early, early 1900s um, because it's, it's there, but it's hard to parse out exactly what role it played. Um, and so what I was trying to explain in the book is that when Texas secedes in 1835 and 1836, what you have to understand is that Texas doesn't come up with this idea all on its own, that we're going to break away from Mexico. Um, what happens instead is that there's a civil war that breaks out in Mexico between centralists who want to centralize authority in Mexico City and then federalists who want the power to be shared much more equally with the states. So you might call them more like states' rights kind of folks. Um, and it's the centralists, the people who want to put authority in Mexico City, who are led by Santa Ana in 1835. They overthrow Mexico's national government, and they take away the rights of all the states to decide issues for themselves. And so when that happens, a civil war breaks out across Mexico. And, and many states... Uh, revolt against the Mexican government. So it's not just Texas that goes into rebellion. You have places like Zacatecas that goes into rebellion. Yucatan is kind of always rebelling during this era. Um, but they, they rebel from the Mexican government. And Texas just happens to be the one part of Mexico that succeeds in its rebellion and actually secedes from Mexico. But when Texas does this, what they're trying to do, the leaders in Texas are trying to do, and it's not just the Anglos who've come in. It's the Anglos and the Tejanos who are rebelling. And what they're trying to accomplish is they're trying to preserve the old um, Constitution of Mexico that gave them authority in the states to decide things for themselves. And the reason they feel so strongly about that is because they want the authority as their own state to decide issues for themselves, the foremost of which was slavery. Because the one thing that Texas had been fighting about with the national government of Mexico um, and, and other levels of the Mexican government, was whether slavery was going to remain legal in Texas or not. And the short version is the National Constitution of Mexico had not outlawed slavery. It allowed the states to decide that for themselves. And then Texas had tried to um, preserve slavery in its state level, um, but it was connected to another state in Mexico called Coila that tried to outlaw slavery. And the point is, the leaders in Texas realized that if we could just be our own state and we could write our own state constitution, then we could preserve slavery here and then decide things for ourselves the way we've always wanted to. And that's the key to our future, is having that kind of autonomy of our own state right to preserve slavery 
that we need to defend and and make sure that we can um, develop the way we need because that will allow us to have the region develop as we need. That's key and that's core to how they understand the situation when Santa Ana overthrows the national constitution of Mexico and then creates um, a situation where there's a civil war in Mexico. They're rebelling at the beginning not to be their own country. They're rebelling to preserve this old order that would give them the, the power to create their own constitution to defend slavery. Slavery is at the core of all of that, and it's woven throughout all of that, but it's a very complex story. And so it, it is at the center of all of this, but it's been a, a, a very difficult thing for historians to debate over the years because there's no new threat to slavery that emerges in 1835 and 36 per se. Um, what happens is that the political order they depend on to preserve slavery in the region gets overthrown, and they're trying to restore that so they can protect what they see as the foundation of their cotton farming and the plantation districts and all the wealth and prosperity that's being brought into Texas during this time period. So it's woven deeply right next to political structure um, in the Mexican context, which is not different in a certain sense from what happens in the United States in 1860 and 1861, where you have the political structure and the future of slavery at stake. They're deeply woven within one another. Um, but we have to understand that long arc in Texas to really be able to, to expose how central that really was. So after the secession, what was the role of slavery in the brief history, the decade or so long history of the Republic of Texas? Did the institution expand after Texas's independence or did it contract or what happened? See, that's what I find the most amazing about this story is that the Republic of Texas emerges as this amazing thing because it's a slaveholder's republic. It is literally dedicated as a slaveholding nation from the beginning um, of its creation. It's, as I often describe it to my students, um, it is everything that the Confederacy wanted to be. But the difference is the Confederates don't win their war, so they don't get a chance to try out their idea of a true nation state built on cotton and slavery and all that. The Texans do win their war, and they do get to try out this idea. And it's our only window, really, into what might have been for the Confederates. And it's, it's a true window, I think, into this ideology that creates the Confederacy that was in full bloom uh, 15 years before the Confederates, uh, actually, no, 20-something years before the Confederates um, try out their idea. So when Texas becomes independent, the first thing they do and actually do this during the revolution before they even win their war, they write a constitution. And the Constitution of the Republic of Texas looks of, it's, it's a basically a very quick copy of the United States Constitution. The difference is that in Section 9 of the Republic of Texas Constitution, it has this huge raft of protections of slavery. Slavery will be never outlawed in the Republic of Texas. The president of the Republic of Texas can't outlaw it. The Congress can't outlaw it. If you're a slaveholder in Texas, you can't even free your own slaves unless you throw them out of the Republic of Texas forever. And they build iron walls around slavery in Texas. And the reason they do that is because they know that the future of Texas is going to be built on cotton. 95% of the Texas economy, when it's a republic, is cotton exports. 95%. It's basically the only thing they've got. And they realize that the... The institution that makes that tremendously profitable has been slavery and will be slavery in the future. And if they're going to compete against the United States cotton, like in Mississippi and Alabama, 
they're going to have to have that institution to keep up and, and hopefully, um, hopefully um, get past Mississippi and Alabama's production levels. And so they dedicate themselves as a slaveholder's republic from the very word go. And slavery expands tremendously during the republic period. Um, as migration comes in from the southern United States, people continue to abandon the United States and go to this new Texas nation. And uh, the number of enslaved people in Texas goes up by about 600% during the um, nine years of the republic. And the slaveholder population increases an almost equally astounding 400-something percent. So the expansion of all this is dramatic. The problem comes for Texas is that declaring yourself a slaveholding republic is a great way in the 1830s to isolate yourself internationally. And so they find themselves in this terrible situation where they can't get international recognition, friends, loans, all the things that a new nation needs in order to survive because nobody wants to recognize them over the slavery issue. And, of course, the Republic of Texas is existing right next to, right adjacent to uh, the United States, which during the same time period is undergoing itself a huge and and increasingly partisan debate over the role of enslavement of African-Americans in, its, in, in their own politics. Right. So how, how does slavery's presence in Texas in this time period become an important partisan issue in American politics in the years leading up to the Civil War? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, Texans thought that would play to their advantage. So you're absolutely right. And this is something I, I, I try to emphasize with my own students. Um, when Texas becomes independent, when all that's happening in the mid-1830s, the United States is gearing up in this roiling debate over the future of slavery in this country and its expansion west. And, you know, you're having the fights over the gag rule and things like that in the United States Congress. You have the rise of Garrisonian abolitionists, right? And you have people in Mississippi and Alabama increasingly concerned about the future of slavery in American politics. Um, in Texas, the leaders of the republic thought that played to their advantage because what they thought they were creating was a safe haven for slaveholders and cotton farmers in North America, and so if you're worried about William Lloyd Garrison and you're in Mississippi or you're worried about, you know, anti-slavery politicians like John Quincy Adams, um, you can leave Mississippi and you can come to Texas where those people are not allowed. There can be no abolitionists in Texas. There can be no anti-slavery politicians in Texas. It'll be a safe haven for those sorts of places. Um, they were wrong that that didn't actually work out for the republic at all. Um, but it did help uh, amplify these debates within the United States as well about the future of slavery's expansion in the country um, because Texas tried also in 1836 to get annexed to the United States. And Andrew Jackson said no, uh, in part because he thought it would create a war with Mexico he didn't want to deal with, but also because, you know, there was such – it was it was the perfect amplification to the debates over slavery that were already going on in Washington, D.C., and the partisan divide between southern states and northern states about the future of slavery in the country. Because the question of adding Texas, it's a huge territory. And if it comes in as a slave territory, it could be one slave state, it could be 20 slave states. But whatever it does become, it's going to expand the power of the American South politically. Because that's one of the amazing things about the American political system is that Political power expands and changes as we add territory and you have new states that have at least two senators and one member of the House. Um, and so the balance of power geographically mattered enormously to both Northerners and Southerners about questions like Texas. And Texas 
becomes that opening of do we annex it or do we not? And in so doing, it forces Northerners and Southerners to start taking sides and digging in their heels about what the future of that kind of Western expansion would be. That the Missouri Compromise was supposed to have settled, <laughs> but Texans had now reopened this whole territory to possibly coming in as slave territory um, that in, in this you know, far southwestern region that it might never have been a part of the United States. So then why does annexation happen? Uh, what, what happens towards the end of your book? And kind of give us a little bit of closure, even though the book ends before the conflict itself erupts. What happens towards the end of the 1840s in the story that you tell? Well, so what happens is that Texas as a republic fails miserably. Um, there's two reasons for that. One, uh, Texas is isolated internationally because it's a slaveholders republic. So it just never gets the political and financial support that it needs from the international community to really start thriving. And then in case of bad timing, you have the panic of 1837 and the collapse of the cotton markets. And when the only thing you have to sell is cotton and the markets for cotton collapse, um, you're in a pretty bad situation. So Texas goes from bad to worse very quickly, and it's broke. And so um, Texans decide really that the only way to save themselves is to, is to get annexed to the United States. Um, the problem with that, of course, is that to get annexed to the United States, you need some Northerners to be on board with that because the historical precedent had been to have a treaty that's approved by two-thirds of the Senate, and you can't do that just with Southern votes. So they tried and failed several times to get Texas annexed that way. Finally, what ends up happening is Texas joins the United States in part because Texans essentially threaten the United States. What they say is that it, either you annex us or we're going to have to go ask the British to become our protector in the region. And that would mean the British would have a foothold in Texas as well as in Oregon and if there's one thing that both uh, white Northerners and Southerners in the United States could agree on is that they really don't like the British. And so that became a rallying cry for um, annexing Texas, which they end up having to do as a, a new method called a joint resolution in the United States Congress um, because they still couldn't get the two-thirds votes. But they managed to get it through largely with Southern support and some Northern support that comes in because of... Um, because of fears of the British coming into the territory. And so Texas limps into the United States um, as a sort of the only thing that could save them from themselves as they're collapsing and really being reconquered by Mexico. And when that happens, it leads directly to a war with Mexico, the U.S.-Mexico War from 1846 to 1848, that not just secures Texas in the United States, but then brings the rest of the American Southwest into the United States so that you have this massive new territory that's added out there, the Mexican Cession, 500,000 square miles of land all the way out to California, that begins this whole new level of debate about the future of expansion and the future of slavery in the territory that really sets the, the road to the American Civil War as it does break out in 1860 to 1861. You know, you mentioning the failure of the Texas Republic uh, in a political sense kind of got my brain going a little bit. So I'm going to throw a question at you, but it, it might be too much to, to, to answer just in the scope of this podcast. <laughs> so so if that's the case, that's okay. Go for it. But, but 
So you have the Republic of Texas that is founded explicitly as a slaveholders republic, and it fails for all the reasons that you laid out. So why didn't then Southern leaders look to that as an example to, to see that what they see for their own nascent nation state isn't going to work the way that they hope that it will? See, does, that, does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And I, I wonder the same thing. It's almost crazy that when you get to 1860, 61, these same Southern leaders, because it's the same guys in many cases, yeah, don't go, well, we, we tried that and it, it totally didn't work. So we probably shouldn't do that again. Um, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. If you look at the Republic of Texas as a dry run for the Confederacy, you see them trying out the same ideas that the Confederates will also try and will also fail for the Confederates. Good example, cotton diplomacy. The Republic of Texas was convinced that the British would recognize them because they had a lot of cotton to sell, and the British need cotton for their textile mills in Manchester and Preston, so, you know, they'll overlook the labor system that the Texans are using. And so the Texans, they go over to London, and, you know, they say, they make their pitch, like, we're, we'll produce so much cotton, and yes, we've got slavery, but we'll probably get rid of that at some point. And the British say, no, we're not, no, we're not buying that. That's not going to work at all. Um, what's amazing about that to me is that the Confederates try the exact same argument with the exact same people. The guy who was the foreign minister when the Texans show up and tell the Texans, no, we're not going to recognize you because of slavery, is the prime minister in England when the Confederates start showing up. And he says, I already told you guys, no, we're just, we're not doing this. Um, I think that part of it is because when Texas um, gets annexed, a lot of the failures of the Republic of Texas um, get, I don't say washed away, but get forgotten under the success of the U.S.-Mexico War, that the, the Texas joins the United States as sort of the final success of that grand transformation, and then the, the victory over Mexico and this massive new territory of land help people forget real quickly what a disaster those Republic period um, years really were. And if you weren't in the Republic, it probably didn't feel as much of a disaster um, as, it, as it really was. And so it might have been easy to forget. But I haven't done a tremendously systematic um, survey of this, but I, I, I'm amazed that there's not more discussion amongst Confederate leaders about the example of the Republic itself in their effort to create this new nation. Um, probably because they felt so much need to move as quickly as they were in the spring of 1861 that they weren't really debating whether this was a good idea anymore. It was just how mm -hmm. do we make it happen at that point? Yeah, that makes sense. You make a number of, of big, important points in this book. But if there's one takeaway that you hope readers come away from your book with, what might that be? You know, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think that, again, one of my big... Um, I think valuable points that I use a lot in my teaching and I, I try to exp uh, have students understand is that connection between the Republic of Texas and the Confederacy, that these ideas are there earlier than they might have expected and that there's a much broader arc of this thinking in the South and in these slaveholders, and not just slaveholders, but you know all Southern farmers during this time period about why the cotton model is so important and expansion for slavery and political power are so tied together. So that's one thing I think that I want people to be able to run with I think is so powerful. But another is, is that, again, this story doesn't just end at the United States official borders, that Americans were going beyond American borders and spreading um, this system with them. 
um, that slaves and the slave people were running away across these borders and going into Mexico and making these, these things, these situations all the more complex because they're appealing to multiple government systems to try to secure their freedoms. And that Mexico was deeply involved in, in trying to deal with the expansion of slavery across the American continent. So you have Mexicans who are supporting Americans bringing cotton and slavery into this, into Texas. But you also have Mexicans who are opposing this and are very much a part of that same debate. And so that this is a continental development, more so than just a national one for the United States. We tend to think and discuss and debate these things within the national context of the United States. And that makes sense. But it's, I think, much more broad and complex than that. And that makes it far more interesting, I think, because it brings, again, Mexico into the story in a way that I, I believe is very, very powerful. And a country that no longer exists, the Republic of Texas. Um, and I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned by the fact that it no longer exists. And this book came out a few years ago now. So what have you been working on since then? Uh, are there any projects that you'd like to give us a brief preview of that you have coming down the road? Yeah, I have a lot. So I do two kinds of things. One, I do um, digital scholarship projects. And so we've been working on a digital edition of the Stephen F. Austin papers. Uh, he was the lead land agent of all of this phenomenon. And he's a great window into both Americans and Mexicans during this period because both of them wrote him letters asking about the other as he was kind of the central conduit between the two. So we've been digitizing and putting up his letters online, um, but we've been building all these amazing new tools that you can explore the collection, not just by reading his individual letters, but you can map his letters over time. You can use things like sentiment analysis to trace the emotional um, arcs of the period. And it's really kind of fascinating in a way that I, I'm really excited about. Um, the other project I'm working on is uh, I'm writing a book about the rise and destruction of 19th century Galveston. And um, the reason that's interesting to me is that um, Galveston, at the end of the Texas Revolution, had nothing on it but three trees and no people because the Mexican government would not allow a port to be established that close to New Orleans. But as soon as the, the Republic um, is established, uh, all the big leaders in Texas um, give themselves exclusive title to the island. They create this thing called the Galveston City Company, and they create, the, they create a city out of nothing. And by the 1850s, it's rivaling New Orleans in economic importance. By the 1870s, it was... Um, Exporting, I think, 70% of all U.S. cotton came through Galveston. Um, and by the 1890s, it has as much economic uh, and political influence, I'd say, as, as a place like New York. Um, but we've forgotten all of that because it was destroyed in 1900 by the most destructive hurricane in American history that killed 8,000 people. Um, and so the book is about the rise and destruction of 19th century Galveston as a window into the development of the region, but also as a, as a window into the development of the American Southwest, because it became the key to financial um, movement, uh, immigration that created not just Texas as it was, but really, you know, Colorado, Nevada, Utah, all these places end up depending heavily on what's coming through Galveston during this period. And I have one final question, uh, which I came across when I was doing a little research on you and prep for this interview, which is, so last summer, you actually broke a world record. What <laughs> yeah. record did you break and what brought you to uh, wanting to break this particular world record? It was, um, <laughs> it was the world record for the world's longest history lesson, which I think all of us have felt like we've taught at one point or another. But, <laughs> um, so... 
The idea behind the record was my kids actually came up with it. Um, I have uh, an 11 year old son and a nine year old daughter. And uh, we were talking one day about setting a world record because um, we were looking at the Guinness uh, website and they were trying to think of cool records to set. And then we saw that uh, you could set a record for world's longest history lesson. And um, we decided to do it in part because I've always wanted to do something like that. I thought it'd be fun. Um, we were also doing it because um, we turned it into a fundraiser for my library. We have a a digital archive called the Portal of Texas History that's amazing, and uh, we were trying to raise support for it. So we thought this might be a good way to do it, and so we put it together. and It took a it took a year of planning um, to put the world record together. Um, I was I had to teach as long as I could, but I also had to have at least ten students with me the entire time, which is amazing. Wow! <laughs> and so we recruited about um, forty five students to be a part of the quote unquote class. And uh, we went 26 and a half hours where I taught the entire history of Texas. I went from cave people till basically last week. And um, we did it straight through. And uh, it took Guinness uh, about nine months to certify the record. But they just certified it. So it is an official world record. And so, so we, we managed to do it. And we raised uh, at the same time $30,000 for the portal of Texas history, which I was very, very excited about. Well, congratulations. I have about a million follow-up questions, but I'll just ask one, which is, uh, where does that go on your CV? The top, <laughs> the bottom, somewhere in the middle? You know, I didn't put it on my CV. I should probably find a place <laughs> for it. I should, I should get a little heading. It says, World Records Set, and it'll be just yeah. one thing. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's a weird thing. Um, it's fun because it was broadcast online, and so while we were doing it, and it was one of those amazing moments where, like, you really got to connect with a broader audience than I was expecting, we were live streaming the whole thing. So, you know, people in DFW where I live, um, Dallas-Fort Worth region, um, saw it and it was on the news and a lot of stuff like that. But people as far away as Ireland were watching this. There was a, I was later told um, by somebody who had been there, there was a town called Dingle, Ireland, where there was a pub um, that had it on one of the televisions they had there. And they were doing a drinking game where every time I said the word <laughs> populist, they would take a take a shot or something. Um, so... You know, it was a lot of fun to be able to to do something like that. Um, and it was a reminder, I think, again, of how much uh, excitement there is um, out there for exciting, interesting stories about the past that people can connect to. Um, this gets back to what we talked about at the very beginning about that power of identity in place and that people really want to understand history, not just because it's they're fascinating stories, but because they find a connection with the, with it themselves. Dr. Andrew Torget is the University Distinguished Teaching Professor in the History Department at the University of North Texas, and his latest book is the award-winning Seeds of Empire, Cotton, Slavery, and the Transformation of the Texas Borderlands, 1800 to 1850, which came out in 2015 with the University of North Carolina Press. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Andrew. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. 